Well, good morning. It's really nice to be back in Hamilton Baptist Church and uh, especially nice to to be back uh, physically. Now, Psalm 90. Now, in our introduction, Andrew read from uh, the words of Moses in Exodus, and we're actually going to be looking this morning again at the words of Moses, because uh, Psalm 90, it says here, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. So we're going to be looking at that, but just uh, some introductory comments first before we read that together. And of course, have you been, you, you've been going through this series of God's attributes, and I have to say it's a, it's a wonderful series to go through, um, and it's nothing more healthy uh, than actually having a, a look at God's attributes uh, and correcting our concept of God and making sure that our concept of God is absolutely right because we can't understand anything else properly if we do not understand who God is and what he's like. And so I've been entrusted with Psalm 9 to this morning and this subject, God is sovereign. This psalm, of course, is not an exhaustive treatment of this subject, but as we study it together, we'll see that God's sovereignty is stamped all over the psalm. And so uh, we see it written by Moses, the, the man of God. So what circumstances prompted Moses by the Holy Spirit to, to write this psalm? Well, this text, just like uh, all of Scripture really, it must have been relevant for his time and, and situation, and it's certainly still utterly relevant for our time today. And uh, looking at this psalm in its uh, context, with its majestic description of God in comparison to us as human beings, uh, we can see, you know, as the psalm goes on to describe us, we're pretty frail, really. And then the the whole searing description of of human sinfulness and, and God's righteous anger and yet the amazing mercy of God towards his people of the repent. And uh, it seems to me like uh, the wilderness warnings of the 40 years of God's people is probably the backdrop to this psalm. Moses, the man of God, he sought the glory of God. We know how Moses witnessed the, the, the sheer sinfulness and spiritual adultery of God's people and witness God's righteous wrath at that sinful behavior. You remember the golden calf and things like that, and hardly away at all, and then they're turning to idolatry and so on. Yet Moses also witnessed God's incredible unreserved mercy to his people when they prayed and turned back to God. So God's control is stamped all over this psalm. Now you say, well, Derek, when you say God's control, what do you mean by control? Because, you know, the way we use language uh, uh, can mean different things. And this word control can have a very positive meaning, can have a very negative meaning, depending on how it's used. He's in a controlling relationship. Bad, bad. 
control. The plane entered the fierce turbulence and we were thrown all over the place, but the pilot soon had it under control. Good, good control. And of course, uh, when we talk about control and God being in control, it's in a very positive sense of, <clears throat> of the word. And I, I look at the, the world of the psalm writer. I look at the, his world and I look at our chaotic world today and I can say that I am glad that God is in control no matter what. In this world where evil seems to triumph, often there's no justice. Dictators from international, from powerful countries right through to the school playground, dictators and bullies seem at times to have free reign. And I need to know that God is in control. I need to know that God is sovereign. And Moses in the desert with the stubborn, willful, disobedient people, he needed to know that as well. And so our psalm divides into three sort of equal parts. Verses 1 to 6, we're going to have a look at the, the people. Uh, the people are mortal. We're going to talk about that, our mortality. And yet God is eternal. We are mortal. God is eternal. Verses 7 to 11 talks about the people are sinful. We are sinful. And God is angry. And then verses 12 to 17, the people pray and God is merciful. So we're going to read that psalm together. I'm reading from the NIV. If you have a Bible or you have a, your device with you, then uh, please follow through this and, and have the psalm in front of you if you, if you can. So here's Psalm 90. And this is the prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They're like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it's dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come in 70 years or, or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. 
Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. You, yes, establish the work of our hands. Sure, God will bless to us the public reading of his inspired scripture. So, what are these observations of Moses, the man of God? It's, it's quite a heavy psalm, actually. You'll probably have noticed if we've come this morning or we're sitting in our city this morning and we're looking for some nice kind of spiritual soul massage and so on, this is not the psalm to turn to because this psalm deals with the absolute and utter realities of life. And so the first six verses uh, people are mortal. We are mortal, but God is eternal. And the very first thing to note here in this psalm, he says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place, our dwelling place. An actual fact, in, in verse 17, the, the very end as well, he talks, may the favor of the Lord, our God, rest with us. So we're talking here uh, about God being addressed as our God. He is our God. He is our dwelling place, our refuge, our place of safety, our place to, to run to. Now, often the scriptures in different places pick that up. Again, Moses in Deuteronomy 33 and 27, he says, The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Our God is our refuge and our strength. Psalm 71, verse 3, it says, Be my rock of refuge to which I always go. Give the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. And the thing is, when we are in dire straits, we run to him. We run to God the one who does not change, the one who is sovereign over all things. And this has been the experience of God people down through the generations, and it's been my own experience too. Sometimes, as uh, many of you in this congregation know, we were in Turkey for many years, and at times we were really facing issues that we were way over our depth. What could we do when you come to an end of yourself? You run to the eternal God. He is a refuge. He is a rock. He is solid. But uh, who is this <clears throat> uh, that we frail created humans can run to? And of course, in verse 2, there's a picture of this absolute magnificence. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Before the world was, he is the Alpha, the Omega. In actual fact, no beginning and no end. He is immortal. We are mortal. He is immortal. He is sovereign. And uh, if we just have a look at, uh, or just have a look here at uh, Isaiah, uh, <clears throat> Chapter 40, 
uh, here, and, and of course Isaiah just says a few sort of similar things here. Uh, Isaiah 40, reading from verse uh, 12, <clears throat> reading from verse 12, he says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains and the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord? And so on. And of course there is a similar passage in Job. Job chapter 38. And of course, you know, God begins to start to speak to Job. Job has had all these comforters that were not much comfort at all, really. And then uh, God then addresses Job in chapter 38 and uh, verse 4. He says this, Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring across it? And you can see how, how Moses here in the psalm, he, he has an idea, he has a grasp of the vastness, the vastness of God, of who he actually is. And of course, it's really impossible to describe with human language the eternal immortal God. I sometimes think if we've got all the languages that we know, all the human languages we know, and we got them together, and we tried to use all these languages to describe who God is, it still wouldn't be enough. But then we've got this stark contrast. Moses moves to something he knows only too well, the sheer frailty of humankind. From everlasting creator God to us, made from dust and to dust we return so in verse 3 uh, you turn people back to dust saying return to dust genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 the lord god formed man from the dust of the ground we always need to remember where we came from genesis chapter 3 verses 9 verse 19 after and of course this is after the fall after sin entered into the world by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now, how does human pride and the sheer hubris that we see in our world today, how do they understand this? But this is, this is, this is reality. And so verse 4 stresses the very brevity of human life. Time means nothing to the eternal sovereign Lord. He lives outside of time, above time. And it's only we who really live in time. <clears throat> Therefore, to God, what might be a thousand years to us would just be a day to him. It's just a way of, of showing that, that, that time means nothing to God. Not even that. It might not even be a day, a thousand years to us, to God. It might not even be a day. It might just be a four-hour shift in the night watch. And, uh, of course, for humans, human mortals, uh, I don't know if you've ever done night shift. I, I did night shift when I was a student in London down in a, a local Sainsbury's <clears throat> and, uh, and we worked from nine in the morning, uh, nine in the evening until nine in the morning. And that, that part from about five o'clock in the morning through to about seven or eight 
where, where weariness kicked in. It felt like a thousand years, <laughs> but it was only just a few hours. And so for God, we can see his vastness. And what for us is often big is nothing to God. And, uh, and of course, Peter refers to this verse in Second Peter 3 when he talks about the patience of God, the patience of a sovereign God uh, with people wanting them to repent. In verses 5 and 6, here in our psalm, here's another reminder of the brevity and the fragility of our life. There are three pictures here that it's like a flood, that we're swept away like a flood, uh, that we're, we're taken in, in the sleep of death, and we're like grass. And this is, this is used often in Scripture, how the frailty of grass. The, now, it's not the lush Scottish grass that we see that is watered constantly by the rain that we enjoy so much in our country. It's a picture here of Middle Eastern grass. There's been a thunderstorm. The rains have come down. And then, and then the next thing, the grass begins to come up. But the storm passes on. The sun comes into view, forty degrees and it frazzles the grass and in a day the grass is gone that's that, that that's that's what our life is like it's brief and so God has laid on my heart this morning to emphasize for some reason the brevity of life and I've been reminded over the years at different points of the brevity of my own life when I turned 60 and I got my bus pass, I thought, surely it can't be that time already. <laughs> and people say, you know, 60 is the new 40, and we like to kind of joke about age and we sort of like to, you know, but my knees know that that's not true. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, I had, a, about 14 years ago, I had, I think, a shocking reminder of the brevity of life my father passed away at aged 86. He'd had a good life, strong believer in the Lord. <clears throat> but he passed away at age 86. And uh, as is the custom, as he was resting in the funeral director's uh, place, we had the offer to, to go and view him. Uh, I, I took up that offer and I went in and he was there in the coffin and uh, as I, I looked, I spent about 20 minutes maybe, I just talked to him, uh, told him just how much I'd miss him. And then I, I bowed over and I kissed his brow. I was shocked. I was shocked at how cold his body was. And, and the whole thing of the brevity of life just hit me between the eyes. And, and I saw my dad there, and I remembered, you know, the times when he would pick me and my brother up in, in his strong arms. And for me, you know, when I was a boy, he was the strongest man I ever knew. But there he was, 86. And frailty of life before me. Thankfully, my dad was right with his maker and was ready to meet his God. 
But Jesus told a parable of another man, a, a rich farmer who'd done very well for himself. And a man who said, well, okay, let's just tear down all these in my barns. They're, they're not holding enough for what I've got and we'll build new ones. And then I'm going to say, let's just take it easy, enjoy my pension and, and they'll eat, drink and be merry and, and so on. And, and God said to him, you fool, because tonight your soul will be required of you. The brevity of life. And I think to, to particularly, it doesn't matter what age we are here, but particularly to our young people today, I really want to say this to you. Live your life in the fear and reverence of God, serving him, knowing that the life he gives us, the life that he gives you, the days and the years, they will pass quickly. Oh, Derek, how, how do you know that? Oh, do you know, here's another thing, Hamilton Baptist. See, see just where that little purple uh, sign is, right down there. 33 years ago, Heidi and I made our marriage vows to each other right on that spot. Do you know that was 33 years ago? And I think, where has the time gone? 30 years ago, David was dedicated here. 27 years ago, I don't know if you remember that moment, <laughs> Esther. Esther was dedicated here. And 21 years ago, Pastor Hugh Robinson, some of you remember him, dedicated our Lauren. The brevity of life is a stark reality. And, I mean, hasn't coronavirus shown this to us? And so we need to strive to live our lives in the knowledge of the overall sovereignty of God that he gives us our life, he gives us our days, our hours, our minutes. What do we do with them? What have we done with the ones we've had already? And of course, there are modern advances in science and medicine, and, and they increase our feelings of invincibility. But this is a delusion. We are transient. We are dependent on a sovereign and eternal God for every breath we take. So let's move on. Verses 7 to 11. People are sinful and God is angry. Oh, Derek, you've really depressed us, reminding us of our mortality. Don't depress us more, talking about our sinfulness and God's anger. But you see, the thing is, since Genesis 3, the whole biblical narrative shows the intentional sinfulness of humanity, how we've turned from God to false gods to all kinds of different things. We've brought harm on ourselves and harm on each other. And verses 7 to 8 says, even the secret sins are exposed. And Isaiah 53, of course, talks about all of us who've gone astray, turned everyone to his own way. Romans 3 and 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory and this is why we need a savior and this is why Jesus came and died as a perfect sacrifice for our sins on the cross. Our first parents sinned and we've all sinned since. Theologians call that original sin. But Derek, isn't this all a wee bit old hat today? We're not that bad after all, are we? 
Uh, and a lot of Christians today, they question the biblical concept of original sin. Steve Chalk, down in London there, he writes in his book, The Lost Message of Jesus. I should say that the message of Jesus has never been lost. Shocking book. This is not a book review to encourage you to buy it. But in there, he says that Jesus believes in original goodness. Original goodness. And this is something that's gathering traction in, you know, the evangelical church, really. That people really are saying, you know, this sort of whole thing about sinfulness and original sin. Well, the thing is, what did Jesus actually say? If he believed in humanity's original goodness, this is what he says, Mark chapter 7. Verses, verse 20, he's going on, the Pharisees are going on about washing all kinds of different things and keeping everything ceremonially clean. And Jesus went on, he says, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. That's what Jesus thinks about humanity. Original goodness? No, Jesus knew exactly what was in people's hearts. And then we have a God who is holy and pure and sinless. A few weeks ago, you were studying the holiness of God so searingly holy that he cannot even look on sin. It offends him, and so his anger. We see his anger at sin. Now, his anger is not like our anger, which, if we are honest, is not always all that righteous. His anger is a natural response to human sinfulness and wickedness. But some Christians today, they don't want an angry God. I don't know what they would do with these verses in this psalm, whether they would just kind of miss them out or think that Moses was making it up. Uh, and, and they try to make excuses for him. And so in the Old Testament, you know, people saying, oh, the destruction of the Canaanites, oh, that was just the sort of Old Testament God, but he eventually morphs into the good New Testament God. Well, that kind of stuff is, is heretical. And the Canaanite culture and religion, the more, we, the, the more we study it, how they sacrificed children to their gods, how they indulged in sexual, sexually perverted behavior, particularly things like bestiality, that, that is having sex with animals, enslaving their neighbors, decapitating their limbs and so on. And that's just to begin with. That's what Canaanite culture was like. And God gave them 400 years to repent. Does evil not need to be judged? And we just think, ah, but Derek, that was then. We're a lot better today. The humanists tell us that we're much better human beings today. Well, you know, just think of some of these ISIS atrocities of, of just a year or so ago, a year or two ago. You'll probably remember the images of these 21 men in their orange jumpsuits standing at the edge of a beach being asked to confess the Islamic uh, creed by ISIS. And as they refused, each man, one after the other, was decapitated. Oh, Derek, we don't like to talk about these things today. This is real. This is what we're living in today in our world. And then the Jordanian pilot that they captured 
and they chained him up and they put him in a cage and they doused him with petrol and they set him on fire and burned him alive and took full footage of it and sent it around the world. You think humanity is better today than it was in Moses' day? And so, is this not going to be judged? All this stuff not going to be judged? I've got a quote here from the Croatian theologian, uh, theologian uh, <clears throat> Miroslav Volf. And he, he was brought up in the old Yugoslavia. Remember in the 90s that horrific civil war in Serbia and uh, <clears throat> in that, that whole area. And he's, he's not an evangelical theologian at all. <laughs> but this is what he says this. He says, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? My resistance to the idea of God's wrath evaporated in the former Yugoslavia. How does God react to such carnage? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. I found that to be quite uh, powerful. And so this is why what we believe about the atonement is so important. God poured out his wrath on his sinless, willing son as a sacrifice for our sin. And if there is no wrath of God poured out on his son, then it means there is no atonement for sin. And so if we don't believe in a God, as the Bible teaches, who's characterized by righteous wrath at the sin and the wickedness and the cruelty and the manipulation and the fraud and the lies and the deceit and the injustice perpetrated in our world, what kind of God do we believe in? And so one day, the judge of all the earth will do right. All the atrocities and all the injustices not dealt with now will one day be dealt with by a holy, sovereign God. And of that, we can be sure. Let's move on then. That's a difficult passage. Let's move on, verses 12 to 17. People pray, and God is merciful. And so now follows prayer, arising from what Moses, the man of God, has been contemplating already. Verse 12, here's a prayer just to capture a true perspective on life. Verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. This prayer is inspired by the awareness of human sin and our own fragile mortality. Teach us to number our days, desire to have a wise heart. That's a model prayer that we can pray ourselves regularly. The thing is, though, be careful. Don't number our days that we've already used up. They're gone, spent, they're expired. Don't try to number the days we've still to have. Why? We don't know how many days. We don't know how many days we've got left. But in every day that God has graciously granted us, may he help us to make them count by having a heart that's marked by wisdom, 
by a deep reverence for God. Proverbs 1 and 7. The fear of or, or the reverence for the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then Moses moves on, verses 13 to 15. A prayer acknowledging that in spite of the realities of sin, with God, life is good. Moses makes us very aware of God's compassion in these verses. And uh, mentions his compassion. And, and you know, when we think about that compassion, that's so exemplified in the life of the Lord Jesus, the incarnate Son. So often we read in the Gospels that he had compassion on this one, compassion on that one. He saw the crowds and he had compassion on them. A very reflection of deity uh, because God is compassionate. In spite of human life, petering out, as verse 9 says, you know, it kind of peters out like a wearisome groan. Uh, and verse 14, in actual fact, we have hope. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. In the morning, there will be a new morning. Why? Because the sovereign God from whom we deserve only wrath is also the God of unfailing love. Therefore, God's people can be happy, glad, and they can sing for joy. Verse 15, Moses prays, Make us glad with blessings in proportion to our afflictions, he says. And uh, it's interesting because I always feel that in the New Testament, we get a much better deal. Uh, just turn over to uh, 2 Corinthians 4 and 17. And this is what Paul says to the church in Corinth. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on what is seen, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The thing is, you know, in the light of the new covenant, in the light of the New Testament, we who live in the light of that, we're really much better off because we can see our future hope much more clearly after the cross. And then finally, coming to the end, verses 16 and 17, Moses reminds us of God's splendor and who he is. Oh, that his people would see and appreciate their God, and that also that their children would find refuge in the God of Moses. Now, isn't this the heartfelt prayer of all believing parents, that our children would not be distracted, that they would not be led away by the shimmering, seductive offers of the false gods of our age, but to see the beauty and to see the splendor of the God of Moses and make him their refuge, make him their dwelling place, their rock, their foundation in the shifting sands of our generation today. And so in verse 17, in spite of the brevity of life, in spite of the fast moving of the years, in spite of the sinfulness of humanity and the wrath of God, 
we've seen from verses 3 to 12. There is good work for God's people to do. The final words really are like a prayer of benediction. May the sovereign God establish the work of our hands while we live in this brief and mortal life of ours. Let's make sure that all we do, we do to God's glory. Whether it be our studies, whether it be our apprenticeship, or our secular work, or, or our housework, or our daily witness, or our retirement, we want God to be honoured by it and to establish it. If what we do, we do to God's glory, the work of our hands will not fail. And Paul urged the believers in Corinth, at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, he said, therefore, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And it was C.T. Studd who said this, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And so this psalm, under the sovereignty of God, we witnessed the reality of human life. It passes quickly. It's sinful, has incurred God's anger. But to those who have God as their rock, those who have God as their refuge, and those who hope and trust in him, our brief life, our work, and our witness will not be in vain. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the scriptures that we have in our hands. And we think of some of these Old Testament scriptures and we think of the, the depth to which they go in terms of describing human nature. And we confess our sinfulness to you today. And we think of how the brevity of life is such a reality for all of us. And yet, Father, we thank you for the heights to which Scripture goes to describe the one true God in all of his majesty and all of his beauty. And we thank you for his holiness. We thank you that he is a judge and one day he will do right and injustice will be punished. We thank you that we can rest in him. We thank you that we can trust the brevity of our days to him, knowing of our eternal future. And so we give thanks. And as we continue together for communion, we ask you would bless us, Lord. Continue to bless us with your presence in his name. Amen.